Well, we have come to the final point of the doctrines of grace. As you know, we've been going through these uh, various points of the doctrines of grace historically, what is called Calvinism. We've looked at every point thus far and try to connect it to other points, and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is no different. Because of sovereign election, because man has been chosen by God for salvation from eternity past, we know that we will persevere to the end and that God, whom he calls, he will glorify, to use the language of Romans chapter 8. He does not let any of his sheep go. It cannot be that a person can walk away from genuine salvation. But what that represents, therefore, are two sort of two sides to that equation. The doctrine of perseverance, or sometimes called preservation, has a couple implications to it. And it has a lot more to do than just you can't lose your salvation. Oh, that is true, 100%. You cannot, if you have eternal life, you cannot circumvent eternal life. You can't cut eternal life short. You can't end eternal life. That's why it's eternal. Eternal life would not be eternal life. It it was temporary. It wouldn't be called eternal life. It would be called temporary life. But God has given us eternal life, eternal life in his son. But it represents, as I said, two challenges. Uh, Let me try to describe this in terms of two people that this might represent. The first person is the person that thinks that that, 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 that perseverance is about personal effort. And so that person might think to themselves, have I done enough? How do I know that I'm doing enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I studied enough? Have I served enough in the local church? Am I doing enough? Is my holiness enough? Do I have enough holiness and piety and sanctification to stay a believer? To, and this person might look at perseverance as an effort to try to earn your perseverance or earn your standing before God. The other person, however, they might look at the whole issue as a foregone conclusion, that is, perseverance. They might say, well, Scripture assures me that I cannot lose my salvation, therefore, I am entitled to live however I want. Well, both of these perspectives are totally wrong. And what we have in the doctrine of preservation, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, really flies in the face of both of these imbalances. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints from two perspectives. Number one, the fact that God will preserve our faith. And number two, the fact that God will empower our faith. So number one, and really the bedrock of all of this is that God preserves our faith. You know, from beginning to end, Scripture presents our faith as a gift from God. God gives us the ability to believe. He gives us the power to believe. He gives us faith so that we will exercise faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, beginning with Abraham, all the way back in Genesis, It was not in Abraham's heart to leave the Ur of Chaldees where he was comfortable worshiping his many false gods. It wasn't until he had heard the sovereign call of God. I mean, Joshua in Joshua 24 verse 2 reflects on this fact that God sovereignly called Joshua, that the call of Joshua was not of himself that he called him out of idolatry, out of paganism, and that, as we know, Genesis chapter 15 goes on to say that on the basis of the faith that Abraham had, he was justified. But that faith came directly from God. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, because there we see a couple of things. There we see that God can begin the venture of faith, and that God will sustain the vitality of our faith as well. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, first passage, says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is the passage that we can turn to time and time again so that we can have confidence in God's preserving power, that God is going to preserve us that he's going to keep us 
firm until the end that God is going to keep us believing in the gospel. And let's make it more explicit. Look at verse 29. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. There we are told explicitly that faith is not of ourselves, as Ephesians 2 tells us, that it is actually given to us. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Well, we might say, oh, gee, thanks. Thank you for giving us the gift of suffering. (laughs) But it is actually a very marvelous promise. It's a promise that says, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of your suffering, God is going to keep you. But uh, Philippians 1.29 is particularly important because here, Paul seems to take into account both that the, uh, the faith that unites us to Christ, but also God's gracious work in, in us involving the idea of persevering and enduring hardships. That's what he's talking about, right? The ability to believe even in the face of hardship. That's what he's talking about in verse 30, that they saw the persecution he was going through, Paul, and that they too were going through this persecution. Now, what is going to keep them in the faith? Isn't it amazing that the Bible talks about our faith as an ongoing thing, that you don't have the type of faith if you are genuinely saved, that you don't have the type of faith that will end tomorrow? And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Why is it that tomorrow you will be believing in the gospel? It doesn't arise from yourself. Um, let me just give you a couple scriptures on this because this is actually a grammatical point. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we are told that we are given a particular type of faith. It says, but as many as received him, John 1, 12, To them he gave them the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And then he says, who were not born of, uh, who were not born, uh, excuse me, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I remember uh, a pastor debating me on this issue and saying, well, you don't believe in free will. Well, I said, well, according to this verse right here in John 1.12, your will is irrelevant, okay? Because your, your being born again is not a result of your will. That's what he's saying. Being born again is not a result of willpower, what you decided to do. No, you could decide to do nothing for God until God enabled you to believe. But the word that John uses here, those who believe in his name is actually, is actually a present active verb, the participle, that means you continually believe. See, the type of faith that genuine believers have is but the, the type of faith that goes on and on and on. The same thing is found, the same exact word is found, the same exact form of the word is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have been written to you who believe. And we could even say, those of you who continually believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is on the basis of the type of faith that God gave you. This faith that won't end. The faith that won't be circumvented. The faith that you cannot destroy on your own. The faith that will go on and on. On the basis of that faith, you and I can have assurance of our salvation. And finally... Not only is faith given, and the faith that is given is of such a kind that goes on and on, but also our faith is protected. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Uh, Maybe seen nowhere better than this. But our faith is protected so that we can survive the assaults against faith. There are all sorts of enemies of faith, adversaries of faith. But we are given faith and our faith is protected so that we can survive the assaults of the world, the temptations of the flesh, and the tactics of the devil. And in Luke 22, we know why. Luke 22, beginning there in verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith 
may not fail. And you, when once you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that, that, uh, that you know me. So think about the context here. The context is Peter's temporary apostasy. There are two types of apostasies in the Word of God. There is temporary apostasy and there is permanent apostasy. Obviously, Peter is a prime example of a temporary apostasy, a denying of the faith. I mean, how many people do you know that denied Jesus Christ in the manner in which Peter has? It was a horrible apostasy. It was a terrible denial. It was a low moment. You want to talk about him hitting a, 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 hitting a low point in his faith. He denied even having faith. And yet Jesus assures him. He, even though he forewarns him, he assures him that his apostasy will recover. Why? Because of his intercession. I have prayed for you. It is on the basis of Jesus' intercession for his people that his people's faith will not fail. Why will your faith not fail? Because Jesus lives always to make intercession for you. In other words, he's like your permanent intercessor in heaven. He is permanently standing in the gap between the Father and us and pleading for our faith, making perfect intercession, which is really based on the perfection of his atonement as we saw, as we saw. Peter learned from his own temporary apostasy, and he even warned his people. First, uh, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he talks about apostasy. And remember how he describes it? It's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's like a pig after you clean it up going back to wallow in the mire. That is how God sees apostasy. That is how God sees a failure to persevere in faith. For believers, however, Scripture makes it very clear that God will preserve our faith so that, like the author of Hebrews says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but... Who are we? We are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Praise God. We will not shrink back precisely because God is preserving us through all of our trials, through all of our failures. If we didn't have this great promise, I submit to you that we would be sunk in our trials. We would sink under the depression of our own sin, of our own faithlessness. But God is faithful. Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, verse 1, that God's perfect faithfulness cannot fail. I love that. He accomplishes wonders. None of God's decrees will fail. Everything he purposes to do will come to pass. It is this perfect faithfulness that will protect you and I for all of life. Jude 24 says that this type of protection is praiseworthy praiseworthy. Jude says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does that mean, from stumbling? Stumbling, scandalizo, or scandalon, literally means to fall away. God is able to keep you from falling away. Isn't that a great promise? That God is able to keep your faith so that tomorrow you don't wake up and say, you know what? I think I prefer that woman to God. I think I prefer that lifestyle to Jesus. I think I prefer that job, that money, that career, that pursuit. I think I prefer these things to the living God. Only the power of God can overcome the certainty of our unbelief. If God were to, but for a moment... Allow the intercession of Jesus to cease on our behalf. I think we would seize that moment and plunge ourselves into apostasy instantly, immediately. We know that on the basis of total depravity. Paul says in John, uh, Romans chapter 7, nothing good is in me that is in my flesh. 
There is nothing good in us left to ourselves. There we go. Guaranteed. I told you this before, I think, but of a conversation that a friend of mine had with a seminary student who challenged him and said, I think I could lose my salvation. (laughs) I said, you should have told him, then you are surely damned. It's not a question of maybe you'll lose your salvation or not. But if you believe in sin, if you believe in in the depravity of man, that it's not a question of I might lose my salvation. Listen, if you're able to lose it according to the, the, the biblical doctrine of depravity, you are guaranteed to lose it. I guarantee your unfaithfulness to God. I don't, I don't put any hope or any stock in your ability to keep yourself saved. No, 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 no. What we need is the preservation of the saints. We need to be protected. As John 17 says, that Jesus prays for us, protects us, keeps us in his name. That means in relationship to the covenant God. He keeps us in the covenant. He keeps us in relationship to God through his intercession. Jude goes on. Not only is he able to keep us from stumbling, he's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Think about that. The reason that you will stand one day in his presence, blameless with great joy, is because God was preserving and protecting your faith all the life long. That's why Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The doctrine of the perseverance of of the saints should end with doxology. It should end with with doxology, with worship. In other words, because of God's faithfulness, we will be able to endure temptation. We will be able to be kept from final falling, from being overcome with grief, from having our lives' trials overwhelm us because trials are overwhelming, aren't they? From allowing a sickness to overthrow us, to plunge us into an irrecoverable darkness and a despondency and a total, complete state of unbelief. And as a matter of fact, it is good for us to know this, brothers and sisters, to, to face the music, so to speak, that this is how hard life is. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, because, once again, the Word of God, being brutally honest, hides nothing from us and assures us of the truth of the Christian life. You won't find this on any prosperity preacher's uh, Uh, sermon notes. He probably will not go to this passage of Scripture. There's probably no prosperity book that has ever been written where this is a main text of exposition. Not that they exposit anything. But Acts chapter 20, verse verse 32 says, Now I commend you to God, he says. And he says, And to the word of his grace that is able to build you up. And that is not the verse that I was looking for. Sorry. Bear with me for a second. It's this important. I put the wrong verse in there. Logos isn't always, you know, isn't always right. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I got it wrong. 14.22. I'll take the hit. That's okay. It's important enough for us to look at this. Acts 14.20. Let's go to 21. Good. Quick draw. Maybe for some of you guys working on tablets, take a little longer to swipe over. After they had preached the gospel to, the, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. How did they encourage them? By telling them the truth. Not by telling them everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Your life is going to get better. God wants health and wealth and prosperity for you. No, that's not what he says. This is how he encourages them, saying, through many tribulations, we must, that day there in the Greek speaks of divine necessity, we must enter the kingdom of God. Don't expect to skate into heaven free from suffering, free from trial, free from heartache, heartbreak. Don't think that your family life is going to be free from dysfunction, and just 
to the point where it can tear you apart. The more you're prepared to suffer, I believe, in the Christian life, the more successful you're going to be. It's whenever you try to, to, to desensitize yourself with this therapeutic, deistic, moralistic type of Christianity, this fantasy in our minds that what God has prepared for you is a never-ending state of happiness. I remember, sadly, sadly, some Christian friends of ours, I think they're Christians, writing to my wife and I telling us that their, their mom was dying of cancer. And their interpretation of that because of the theology that they were under was she allowed the devil to get a foothold. She's allowing the devil to overwhelm her. She's allowing the devil to win. <laughs> this is a woman laying in a hospital bed dying of cancer and she's being accused of not having enough faith. If she just had a little bit more faith in what God's able to do, she should walk out of that hospital just wealthy as all get out. But that's exactly what's wrong with the prosperity teaching is it's not true. And ultimately, it leads to condemnation. No, folks, the, the only thing that is going to keep our faith intact is the power of God. But we need to understand the context of that power. That power is in the context of our trials and our suffering. We'll get to more of that in Hebrews in a moment. But with me, turn to John chapter 10, because this is another important point here, that the power of God is of such that it keeps us from internal and external threat, internal and external danger. You see, because you cannot trust yourself because you are depraved, you are sinful. And you cannot trust your environment because your environment is also sinful and hostile. There are too many temptations. What does John say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17? He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, right? All of these things are of the world. And that is the type of world that we live in. But John, uh, Jesus assured us here in John 10 that God's ability to keep us is more powerful than our ability to inflict harm upon ourselves. When he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, verse 27, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen to the promise of that. Bank on that promise. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So now you have the triune God actively working in your life, in my life, to keep us in his hand. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus says, the Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we're in two hands. Obviously, metaphorically speaking, we are in, in other words, we are in the protection of Christ. We are in the protection of the Father. We are sealed and protected by the Spirit so that the whole triune God is working day and night ceaselessly to save us and to keep us in the faith, to keep us in His mercy. That means that we don't need to live in terror. That means that we don't need to live in a state of spiritual paranoia and wondering, oh no, is tomorrow the day? I don't know how you can be Catholic and live in, uh, with a sane mind. How do you know that tomorrow you will not commit a mortal sin? I mean, they think salvation is like a light switch. You can turn it on and off, on and off. And so what are Catholics constantly doing? They're constantly trying to renew the amount of grace that they have so that they can be sure that there's enough in the bank Right? There's enough in the reservoir that there's enough grace infused into them that maybe at the end of the day, the scales will tip in their favor. It's a total works-based system of righteousness. But the Bible teaches the complete opposite. It is not for us to maintain our status in the covenant. You do not add one ounce of righteousness positionally to your relationship with God. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, you know this verse. What is Christianity but a looking away from self, a complete abandonment of confidence in ourselves in a total, 
total resignation, total refuge in the power of God, in the righteousness of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, after he talks about all the great religious things that he's ever done, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Is that valuable to you? The surpassing, can you speak that way today of Jesus Christ? For me, there is surpassing value. In other words, nothing more valuable for me in this whole life than to look to Jesus. He says, looking to him, knowing him, being in a relationship with him, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Verse 9 is crucial for your doctrine of justification. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is where our security lies. It is not of ourself. It is not our righteousness. It is not all the good things that we do. We hope little by little those things will commend us to God. And sometimes we live as if we believe that. Have you noticed you've done that? Whenever you fail, whenever you sin, what is your gut reaction? Okay, I need to double down on my Bible reading now. Okay, now i got to get really serious and go to never going to miss Sunday. Okay, now I'm going to listen to Christian worship even louder in the car. You know, now I'm going to get really into it. What was that book that Pastor Mueller was talking about? We live sometimes like Pharisees. We think that our standing before God positionally is on the basis of our merit, but we don't understand, which is really a paradoxical statement. What are you saying, Pastor Mueller? There's nothing I can do to become more righteous in the sight of God? That's right. Because guess what? Isaiah tells us, your righteousness is like filthy rags anyway. Your righteousness is not enough, not going to make it. With that kind of righteousness, you can go to church until you're blue in the face. You can read every theologian. You can listen to every podcast by John MacArthur. You can do whatever you need you think you're doing that's righteous, and none of it will get you off the ground. Get you off the ground. All of our positional righteousness is in Christ in Christ. So does that mean that now I can live however I want? Because the righteousness that I have before God in Christ means I can't add to it and I can't take away from it. It's set. No, it doesn't. God does not just preserve our faith, but God also empowers our faith. If you were there in Philippians, look to chapter 2, because we started with Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you, faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus, he has given us our faith. But if you just jump over to Philippians chapter 2, now we have the other side of the coin. Now we have the full equation that God is not just giving faith, protecting faith, preserving our faith, but he is also empowering our faith. What does preserved faith look like? It looks like this, empowered faith. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice the word work out. He doesn't say work for. Don't tell me theology is not important. One word, one word takes you from the gospel to a works-based righteousness. One word, one word. So, Paul is saying, yes, you're saved. Yes, you're sealed. But it was Paul who just said in chapter 1, God is the one that's going to complete it. It is Paul who just said in chapter 1, God is the one that granted you faith. And now it's Paul in chapter 2 saying, work out your salvation if, with fear and with trembling. What does that mean? That means 
that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints never leads to spiritual laziness. It always leads to virtue, to vigilance. It always leads us to be practically working out our salvation. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Because he speaks that with equal force, right? God is the one who gave you faith. God is the one that will complete it. And with equal force and ferocity, the word of God says, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. And the minute you get too far on one side, you have lost the biblical vision of the doctrine of perseverance. The minute you say, okay, based on Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that means it's all about me. I, so everything depends on me. I need to do enough. I got to go. I got to be, you know, I, I need to become super spiritual if I'm going to be saved. Or if you go the opposite way and say more of a fatalistic type of, fatalistic type of vision is saying, look, if God has done this for me positionally, well, then practically that means I can live however I want. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Matter of fact, Paul kind of addresses this very thing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. 2 Thess 2.16. He kind of addresses this tension again. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself the God, uh, and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Watch this. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Isn't that amazing? What kind of comfort does God want for you? Eternal comfort. He wants to comfort you with thoughts of eternity. When it's all said and done, folks, when our work is over, when we fly by and by, when, this, when, when we sigh for our last time living under the drudgery of this world, when we live the militancy of this age, when we live, when we leave uh, the oppression of this world, when we shed this sinful, mortal, perishable flesh behind and we go into our everlasting rest, that's the comfort that God is talking about. But where is that comfort happening? In what context? In what sphere? In every good work. That's how it's happening. In the context of works. In other words, you must, as James says, as James says, for those that have been reading Romans, 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 right? Not by works, not by works, not by works. Lest you get the idea, works are irrelevant and unimportant. James comes in and says, what good is faith without works? Your faith is worthless if it doesn't have works so that you can never again end up on that side of this equation. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, as we'll spend the remainder of our time there. Hebrews chapter 10, we are called for good works. We are called to stimulate one another, right? You know this verse is so important. The more and more our Christian life progresses, it doesn't mean, oh, the more and more you're getting a hang of this thing so you can let up. <laughs> That's not what it means. The more and more our Christian life progresses, the more and more works we should have. We should be overflowing. We should be a tree that's just full of fruit in old age. I mean, what would you think if you walked down the corridor, let's say some field of apple trees, and it's just bubbling over some of the orange groves. You've seen that in California, right? A huge, massive trees full of orange groves. When I was in high school, we would fill those up. We would fill our truck up with oranges and have orange wars. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. We'd throw oranges at each other, nearly kill each other. But anyway, it's what you do when you're in high school, right? When you're not saved, kids, when you're not saved. But imagine walking down the field of that corridor of orange trees and coming upon a massive orange tree with no oranges on it. You would say, what a contradiction. You would say, what's wrong with this tree? It's, 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 it's bare. It's, it's barren. It, it, it's something, is it wrong? Is there, has it been infected with bugs or something? Jesus said, the will of the Father is that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would what? Remain. Abide. Abide. 
No seasons of saying, oh, you should have met me when I was just first a Christian. Oh, if you only knew me when I was freshly saved. Oh, I, I was a lot like you, young man. I used to be zealous like you. Oh, if you would have met me 20 years ago, I was a lot more, you know, involved in the church than I am now. I had a lot more zeal for the Lord. No, no, folks, we can't live on the fumes of yesteryear. We are called more and more. Look at verse 23, 1023. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some. By the way, that is a pejorative contrast. It is pejorative in that the habit of some refers to a group of people that are being cast in a bad light. There are some who neglect and forsake the assembly of the saints. That's not a good group to be in. He says, but encouraging one another all the more. See that? Oh, I love the authors of Scripture. Never letting off. Never going in the cruise control, right? Don't coast in your spiritual life. More and more, as you see the day drawing near. What's the day? The day of Christ Jesus. The day of your meeting him. The day that you will be united to him. The day when what wonders will you see when you see him finally face to face. That is the day. And it can come for you before it comes for the rest of the world. If God decides to call you home. If God decides to call you. And look at this. We are called, therefore, to encourage. What does it mean to stimulate one another? He said, hold fast. Okay, that's the imperative. Hold fast. Are you holding fast? I will know if you're really holding fast if these things are true about you. Are you, instead of forsaking the assembly, are you driven to the assembly? Love the assembly. Come to the assembly. Assemble together with God's people. Or do you try to avoid the people of God? See, he goes on to say, and encourage one another. I thought about this today on the way to church. I would wonder if we went person by person in here and asked, when was the last time, genuinely, don't say you went to somebody and say, hey, God bless you. I'm talking about genuinely knowing you encouraged someone today. See, intentionality is everything, Right? I'm not talking about just throwing out a Christian slogan or Christian lingo. I'm talking about genuine grace-imparting encouragement. Imagine if we all had that zeal. I promise you that everything would change. Everything would change. We can't look back on some experience that we had and how many people look, look at that. Some people look back and say, oh, I was baptized. Don't worry. Or... I got saved a long time ago. I've been a Christian for a very long time. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. Well, I hope we don't have to worry about you, but you should be productive. It doesn't matter how old. Jay Adams, the great Christian counselor of evangelicalism. Jay Adams, after years, probably 50 years of counseling people, said when you get old and get ready to die, you had better be very, very busy for the Lord. This is a man talking now in his 80s saying, you had better be very busy about the things of God, or you will probably die a very miserable, angry, bitter person. Isn't that amazing? That's the insight that he had after 50 years of counseling. Be busy about the Lord's business. Get a fire under you about God and about your walk with him. Think of ways, strategies to be more productive, more zeal. More confidence. Now jump down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Because here, again, it's not enough. You can't let up. You can't go back. And we know that because of verses 35 to 39. Because we know that in the context of Hebrews, they have been enduring. They have been persevering. But he's calling them to persevere even more. You remember, as he says in verse 34, that they had their goods taken away the seizure of their property. They had their goods plundered. Why? Because they reached out to the persecuted church. They went to the prison. 
Who knows what risks? Oh, boy, think about this in the ancient world. There's no rights. There's no laws. There's no lawyers to take care of you. I mean, there's all sorts of fraud and abuse and oppression and tyranny and imperialism. And it says here in Hebrews 34 that they, they weren't afraid to go and identify with those who had been treated harshly. In other words, those who had been persecuted for their faith and they endured they persevered but it says in verse 35 don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance i thought they were enduring they did they were they passed the test they endured through this persecution what's the threat of hebrews what's going on in hebrews you know Hebrews is famous for its warning passages. Over and over, the author of Hebrews is warning his audience about a certain danger. And what is that danger? Apostasy. Going back. Shrinking back. Chapter 6, not going on to maturity. Leaving behind the Jewish teachings. Not going back, in other words, to the Old Covenant as the Judaizers were forcing them to try to do. But going forward into the glories of the new covenant, don't go back in redemptive history. Go forward. And by going back, they would be, as he says in chapter 6, crucifying the Lord of glory all over again. He'd be, they'd be putting Christ to an open shame. And so this is their need for endurance. The warning is now, don't throw away your confidence by going back to old covenant regulations and forfeiting, as it says here, your great reward. In verse 37, he goes on to say, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, if, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 38 is a messianic quotation from Habakkuk, saying, Christ, the righteous one, will not delay. He is coming. And so he gives an eschatological incentive, meaning eschatology talking about the future. As certain as Christ will come, and he will, and he will not delay, as certain as that, you too hold fast. Don't throw away your confession. Endure, as he says. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That is a beautiful comfort for you and I. How will we do this? Turn to chapter 12. How will we not throw away our confidence? He does, the beautiful thing about Hebrews is he doesn't just challenge us, right? It's one thing to challenge one another. It's another thing to model it. It's another thing to set out the, 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 the how of what you're calling people to. Good news for us, he gives it to us. He doesn't just give us a warning, but he also gives us the model of how to do it, namely looking to Jesus. And so he returns us back to the anchor beyond the veil. Look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Verse 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Should be one of our most treasured verses. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, if you want to survive soteriology, you better focus on Christology. If you want to succeed in your confession, if you want to endure, if you want to persevere, you had better have an eye for Christological things. You had better, in other words, be obsessed with Jesus, when you look at something, when you fix your eyes habitually, perpetually, incessantly at something, it means you have an obsession with it. It means you're neurotic almost about it. This is almost like a good neur neurotic state for us. We need to be obsessed with the person of Jesus Christ. There is no access or excess of looking to Jesus. You will never get tired of it. You should not. 
It will never get old. It ought not. Uh, let me read to you a quote by 19th century commentator, preacher, Puritan scholar, John Brown. John Brown, when I, years ago, I researched all the problem passages in Hebrews that seemed to indicate that you could fall away. It was the Puritan commentator, John Brown, Puritan born out of his time, but he, he speaks with such a puritanical uh, uh, um, a theology that many of them consider him to be a, a Puritan out of his times, you know. And he was so helpful to me, John Brown. So as we go through the book of Hebrews together, John Brown, you better get ready for John Brown quotes. But this is what John Brown says about this whole text, about fixing our eyes on him. He says, the whole content of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, contain practical improvement on the apostles' long and eloquent historical proof and illustration of the power of, per of persevering faith to enable men, this is the power of persevering faith, to enable men to do whatever God commands, however difficult, to endure whatever God appoints, however severe, and to obtain whatever God promises, however great and glorious and strange and apparently unattainable. The Hebrew Christians are exhorted to a steady, active, preserving discharge of Christian duty. Isn't that amazing? I could read it again for us, but the point of what he's saying is this. He's saying, we know that your life in this world is like an alien existence. You're under hardship. You, I know that the promises of God seem to be at times strange. And we just got done studying Abraham and the men's study where we saw Abraham's alien-like existence in this world. And oftentimes he looked at the promises of God like they were strange to him, hard to believe, difficult to hold on to. And yet God called him to do things that were seemingly difficult for him to grasp, like have a child at a hundred <laughs> when he was old, right? So whatever strange and even apparently unattainable promises God has made, Scripture is calling us to a steady, active, preserving discharge of Christian duties. That means stay in the pattern of Christian obedience. I know that sometimes it can get old, going to church again, loading up the cars, getting the kids back to the Bible, Pastor Emilio up there preaching, and over and over, week after week. But these are the means of grace that God has ordained for us to persevere. That's how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen apart from that. And yet so many people are preaching, no, you need to look to the mountain high experience. Everybody's trying to, you know, publish some book that's going to give you that ultimate experience that you've never had, that word from the Lord that you really need. You need to go, you need to get away. You need to go to a men's retreat. You need to have a, an emotional time with God. Yes, those things may happen. But what's more important to me is not how did you do at an emotional climax during a spiritual high, but how are you doing in your everyday walk with Christ? That will tell me a lot more of how you're going to persevere in this life. Or, after having an, experience, uh, an experiential uh, a moment with God, and you go back to the seemingly mundane things of life, do you fall apart? Do you fall apart? The call to persevere may seem strange. It may be difficult and even dangerous. It was for them. It was dangerous for them. Many of them went to jail. Many of them had their property confiscated. I tell you what, you start com the government starts confiscating people's property in Frisco, we'll see where your faith is at. We'll see when that 4,000 square foot house is taken away from you. We'll see where you're really at with Christ. If you will joyfully accept the plundering of your goods, how we bear up under persecution. Then we'll see. So he gives us the means, the manner of how we will do this by looking unto Jesus. And as we continually think about that, because the question is very simple, what does it mean to look unto Jesus? What does it mean for you and I to fix our eyes on Jesus? It means that we have a habitual 
contemplation of the person and of the work of Jesus Christ. That we never tire of looking at who he is and what he has done. As we study the word, as we gaze upon him, as we read here, in, the, in God's sacred word, we read in fair lines, we see our bleeding, dying Lord. So we open up the Bible, the Bible becomes the fuel for our ability to fix our, our gaze on Jesus Christ. If we do this, then we can make sense out of our pain. If we fix our eyes on Christ, then we can endure our afflictions, our despair, our grief, our persecutions, our loneliness, our discouragements by habitually looking to him, looking away from self and looking to Christ. I've always liked to think of it like this. If I look too long at myself, I just get depressed and discouraged because there's not nothing there to look at. I need to look at something better, more beautiful, more encouraging, more, more exciting because my life left to myself, I, I will make shipwreck of everything. And so gazing on Jesus, looking to him, learning from him, following his redemptive uh, work in Scripture, it is by looking at Jesus that we find the promise of our redemption, the promise of our final vindication, the promise of eternal life, the promise that we're going to have an inheritance that will never fade away, the promise of all things put right, right? In Christ, we have our faith fully intact. Let me pray for you. Father, Lord, I do pray for your people today, Lord, and I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by a lot of the things that I hear in our church. Encouraged by people that are learning about Christ and growing in Christ and overcoming this trial and that trial and persevering through this illness and that affliction. And God, we pray, like the author of Hebrews, we have need of endurance, Lord. Help us. Strengthen our faith. Kill our unbelief. Help us to put to death the flesh with all of its vices, to make no opportunity for the flesh. Lord, help us to fix our gaze on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We can go to no greater source, no greater example than Jesus Christ himself. And give us the ability to master the art of looking unto Jesus for our everlasting hope. We pray these things in his name. Amen.